title for this message is New Life, New Attitudes. And we're going to actually read in a moment from chapter 4 from verse 30. We are going to power on three verses to 32, and then we're going to finish. We're absolutely going crazy. But to give you a bit of background so that we can all be brought back up to speed, what's been going on in Ephesians? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, all about who we are in Christ. It's our position in Christ. The truth that He saved us, He chose us, He redeemed us, He reconciled us, He forgave us, He assures us that heaven is our home, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a, as a seal, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And that's what chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about. It's the background and the drive to the book of Ephesians. It's the bit that is all to do with planned in eternity. But then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he starts to work out displayed in community. So at the start of chapter 4, verse 1, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he looks us in the eyes and Christians, he says, listen, the way you live your life will never earn salvation, it will never merit salvation, but it does exhibit it and it does mark it. You reveal in your life what you're really passionate about. You reveal in your life who you're really living for, whether it be Jesus as your king or whether it just be yourself. And so he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then in verse 3, he really nails it down and really helps us see what that looks like by exhorting us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. Well, that's important stuff, eh? That's important stuff for any church, but particularly for a church plant that is trying to get off the island and get over the waves, how important is it that we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit? It's vital. You lose unity, you lose the church. Everything starts to go division off, and people champion different things, and before you know it, there's barely anything left. So how kind of the Apostle Paul, and indeed God, is the author of all Scripture to bring this to our attention. So we need to walk in a manner worthy of the call. What does that mean? Well, it means eagerly maintain the unity. And then he starts spending time in the rest of that chapter just helping us see what that looks like. Because here's the challenge. Maintaining the unity isn't as easy as it sounds. Actually, pretty hard. Because in the same way when you get married, sinners say, I do. In church, sinners say, yeah, count me in. You know, it's just a room full of people that bring different ideas to the party, different heart issues to the party, that's life. And so Paul says, listen, as you eagerly maintain the unity, you need to put off the old self and you need to put on the new self because this is going to take work to bring you together as a family. And so he attends us to the divine changing room in the middle of chapter 4. And then at the end of chapter 4, from verses 25 to 32, he starts talking very clear specifics to us. He says, you know what, put off lying. That's got to go. And put on telling the truth. Put off anger and put on self-control. Put off stealing and put on earning money and then sharing it generously. Put off corrupt talk and gossip. It's just not going to work if you're going to maintain a unity. And instead, put on talk that builds up and gives grace to the hearer. And then in verse 30 to 32, he directs his attention towards our bitterness. So let's read it together. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word, we want to not only see ourselves in the mirror, we want to go away and make some changes. Lord, thank you for the unity that you have brought into this family, this local church. The love for one another, the affection for one another, the care for one another. Lord, this family is indeed connected and committed as we're called to be through Ephesians chapter 4. So, Lord, would you give us grace then to hear? Lord, grace to understand how we maintain the unity that you have given us. Lord, where change is necessary, would that change not be burdensome, but would it be filled with enthusiasm? Oh, Lord, more than anything, would we be freshly amazed with you, what you have achieved for us on the cross, your incredible work, that earned forgiveness for us. Help us, help, help us, Lord, by your grace. Amen. You know, Memorial Day 1962 in Centralia, Pennsylvania, it started really like any other day. They got on with their day. It was Memorial Day, so they did lots of celebrations to celebrate that in the United States of America. And then at the, what they decided to do as residents, for some random reason, is they decided that they would set light to the rubbish dump. Now, this wasn't just for fun. This was something they did regularly because the rubbish dump over the year would just get so big that they would set light to it to try and reduce its size and to try and kill all the rodents that started to live in it over the year. They'd done it before, but on this particular occasion in 1962, when they set light to the rubbish dump, they also accidentally set light to the book-mounting coal vein concealed just behind the rubbish dump. They tried to put it out real quick, and they thought they su succeeded. But a few days later, they found that they hadn't succeeded at all. It erupted again, and what the coal began to then do was burn underground, which meant it started to burn underground underneath their houses. For the next two decades, workers and engineers battled to try and put this thing out, but to no avail. The fire continued to burn, and advance underground at a rate of about 60 feet per year. In 1981, a 12-year-old boy was playing in his back garden. And then he was, as he was playing, a hole in the ground opened up. He fell down it. And it, in God's kindness, they managed to rescue him. But at that point, this town realized they had one seriously big problem on their hands. For the coal that was burning underneath was starting to do blowholes into people's gardens. And out of that, carbon monoxide was coming out. The highway actually cracked and collapsed, and trees that were growing in people's gardens and the lawns began to be bleached, and they began to be petrified, literally turned into stone because of all the fumes that were coming out from underneath the ground. Eventually, homes, some of them had to be demolished. Most of them were abandoned, and because of the carbon monoxide, so many plumes were coming out that they had to leave the town. You know, over many years... Many attempts have been made to deal with this problem. And yet this fire still burns. 
An engineer concluded some years ago that it was likely to burn for at least another century. And as a result, with that news, Centralia particularly became a ghost town. It went from 1,600 residents to seven. Seven diehard individuals that decided they were going to try and stick it out. You know, if you and I today went near Centralia, we would be passing on Route 61. And the interesting thing for us is you would go along Route 61 and you wouldn't even know of the little town that lies to your right that is indeed Centralia, an abandoned town and a saddening story. You know, bitterness in the heart works just like this. It's a slow-burning fire under the surface of our lives. It's not always apparent to the passerby. People can interact with you and be relatively unaware that it's there. But eventually it makes its presence known. Because at some point, at some time, somebody says the wrong thing at the wrong time, and bam, you're angry, you can be slanderous, you can be wrathful. And what has been simmering under the surface all that time is now erupting out of your mouth in poisonous words or in angry words. If unchecked, bitterness always advances and destroys all that lies in its path. And if unchecked, regrettably, you know what ultimately happens? People end up moving away. And the very unity that you'd wanted, because of poisonous gases that come forth from bitterness, people begin to move away. Bitterness works just like this issue that Centralia, Pennsylvania, happened to them. You know, the ugly and unpleasant list of verse 31 here, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. This ugly and unpleasant list all relate directly to the attitude of bitterness. See, bitterness is not really something we do. It's something we feel. It's an inner resentment in our heart, an inner chat, inner attitude of resentment. It's an enemy within, but left unchecked, and allowed to fester, it comes out as all these other things. It comes out. It can erupt in wrath and anger. It can overflow in clamor or slander. And it can seep out through the ground of our lives with all sorts of malice left unchecked. With malice that desires to hurt. Malice that desires to get even. Malice that is so grieved by what has happened to them that it affects others. Now, bitterness is nasty stuff, isn't it? And so no wonder Paul looks us in the eye as he seeks to care for us as a local church and says, you know what, bitterness, all that, let it all go. Let there be none of it in a local church as you seek to eagerly maintain the unity. It is nasty stuff. And yet the challenge is, as I've thought about it this week, the challenge is it's not as easy as that to get rid of it. It's nasty stuff, and so we should want to rebel against it. But it's not as easy as that, because bitterness, when you stop and think about it, really is our natural reaction to being sinned against, isn't it? It's the way we tend to feel when people hurt us or offend us or sin against us. And that's why it's not quite as easy to get rid of. You know, one of the things I've discovered living in Australia is it doesn't matter whether you're in Australia or the United Kingdom or America. There is a universal king of the road. You know what I'm saying? There's always someone on the road, whatever, whatever country you're in that feels that this is clearly 
their road. And, and these individuals always, they always, they always press my buttons because I want to be the king of the road. And yet they have decided, they have decided that they are the king of the road and that's clearly inappropriate. So we're driving along, and, you know, driving along, even down here I've driven along before. You drive along down Pennant Hills Road and the universal king of the road is to your right. And, and it's clear that the signs are saying that we all need to get into one lane. It's not hard. That's very easy. Let's not rebel against all authority. That's fine. They clearly want us into one lane. So Goody Two Shoes gets into one lane. So we get into one lane. And the universal king of the road comes next to you and they want to cut in front of you. Well, I do what everybody else does. You get as close as you possibly can <laughs> to the person in front to let the king of the road know that they are not getting in. Now, as I do that, I do like to have a little look over to acknowledge that, yes, you're not coming in. Yes. And what tends to happen at that point is they respond with universal sign language, <laughs> which again seems to be known all over the world. It's, it's remarkable. At that point, I, I'm particularly grieved and I begin to shake my head or something really self-righteous. And they usually then go in front of me, a couple of cars, and somebody in a moment of madness lets them in. I am appalled by that. That is just wrong. So then for the next probably 100 yards and probably for about 20 minutes, I'm having dreams as I'm driving along of running them off the road. Because I just feel agitated by the fact that they've now got in front. This is just wrong. They have offended me. This is just horrendous. And all I want to do now is chase them and get as close as I can and use that bumper thing on the car, the thing that you hit people with. Use that thing to get really close and really upset them. That's what I really want to do. Sadly, I can never actually chase them fast enough to do it. But that's what I want to do. Now, it's humorous. But in essence, that is bitterness. It's that inner resentment of, who do you think you are? Pushing in front of me, Mr. King of the Road. No, no, no. And then he gets in, and all I want to do is chase him down. Because I'm angry. And I'm agitated by what he's become. Bitterness is our natural reaction to being sinned against and offended. It's the natural reaction of a parent who seeks to serve their children day in, day out, making their meals, doing their washing, serving their home, and the kid is ungrateful, ungracious, unkind, thankless. It's the natural reaction of the teen who is seeking to please mum and dad and bless mum and dad but all he actually gets all the time is really exasperation. His parents expect much, excuse little, and everything that he wants to do, they say no to. It's the natural reaction of a wife who is seeking to lay down her life within the context of her home, and the husband does nothing to lift a finger ever. He comes in from work, has a sit down, wants his slippers, wants looking after and just will not help in the home. It's a natural reaction of a husband who is actually seeking to serve his wife and help his wife, and yet more often than not, he is on the end of excessive criticism, and all the time, every day, all she seems to do is find fault in everything that he does. It's the natural reaction in all those things to feel bitterness, to feel cross, to feel resentment towards that individual is what that individual is putting you through. It happens as well in workplace relationships, community relationships, church relationships. It happens in our lives. And the natural reaction to those things is indeed bitterness. And so the fire burns beneath the surface of our lives. 
we get cross. We begin to seethe. We begin to get agitated with somebody. And although a passerby would never realize, when that person says the wrong thing at the wrong time, they're having it. You explode. But it's all started with bitterness. You know, the sad thing when that actually happens, and when we actually usually explode, which does happen, is you often then sit with somebody pastorally and their grief is not, only, is not only repentance and remorse that they spoke like that. It's also the question of, how did I get here? I didn't start angry. I wasn't angry when I married him. How did I get so angry now? How, how did those things come about? You know, I love my children. How come then I'm now shouting at them in anger? What is up with that? How does this work? How did I indeed get here? You know, with this question in mind, I think this text that we have in front of us today is incredibly encouraging. You see, through this text today, we should be able to discover that bitterness is indeed a common challenge. It's a very common challenge. How do we know? Well, because Paul is writing to Christians. And he's saying, you know what, guys? Bitterness going to be an issue for you because you breathe and you eat so bitterness comes in with that unless you're going to live by yourself as soon as you interact with others bitterness is going to be a challenge he's writing to christians and so make no mistake bitterness is part of the old self something that marks the unregenerate but it also affects christians it affects me and i think if we're honest it affects us all different times and in different ways and also through this text i think what paul gives us is a real insight into a hope and indeed that we have and a help that we have in jesus christ see we have wonderful help through the wisdom of god's word we have a wonderful help through this word god doesn't just say all right listen up church i'm really pleased that you're saved well done Um, bitterness stop it right moving on he doesn't do that He speaks to us wisdom, and he talks to us graciously and gives us real insight into, okay, this is the way your heart works in that, and this is why you need to oversee that, and this is how you're going to be able to change in that. We have great help through the words of Scripture, and we have great hope because of the personal work of Jesus Christ. We have great hope for change in the power of the gospel. God hasn't just saved us and then said, all right, well, do your best. He's saying, listen, I've saved you, and now you're going to change. And as you change... I'm going to be right there with you, helping you. Helping you off with the old and helping you on with the new. And so praise God for this text because it is a wonderful help and I believe a wonderful hope for Saul. And if you want to know in short what this text is about, it's about this. What we have in front of us today is the Apostle Paul himself pulling back the curtain on how the gospel speaks to our bitterness. That's all it's about. How does the gospel speak to the bitterness that can so easily run under and and in your hearts? The gospel is so vital for us. And bitterness is indeed an enemy to our unity. So what does the gospel have to say to it? Well, there's three things. Paul, using three verses, I really can help us see how these verses work out just through one word to each verse. So we're going to go through it. We're really looking at three words. Number one, motivation. Number two, exhortation. And then number three, imitation. 
That works for me. Three verses, three points. Bingo. So number one, motivation. What does the gospel say to our bitterness? Number one, motivation. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You know, I can think of many reasons, motivational reasons, as to why we should avoid the temptation to bitterness. I can think of loads. The damage that it does to others, the damage that it does to my own reputation, the damage that it does in the way I think and the way I pursue people, the damage it does to a church, the damage that it does for the sake of the gospel and the way we communicate and the way we are as a local church. And yet Paul doesn't actually primarily pick on any of them. His primary issue is that, you know what, you should be motivated to change because bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. The bitterness that is in your heart and the anger and the clamor and the malice and the wrath is something that grieves him. You know, as I thought about it this week, one thing that became apparent to me is I just don't think a lot about the spiritual dimension in my life. Yes, Bianca, not that I don't think a lot. <laughs> All right? You know what I'm saying? Oh, Lord, how long, oh, Lord? <laughs> I don't think a lot about the spiritual dimension. So I can think a lot about the, the horizontal dimension. So, look, we shouldn't use bitterness because of the way it affects each other. But Paul is actually saying, look, don't worry about that for a minute. Think about the spiritual dimension. And he goes back to this spiritual dimension a lot in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians 3, verse 10, he starts to talk to us about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, the local church is simply incredible. It's simply splendid and amazing. Why? Because as we work out our lives together, our role in part is that through our lives, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to who? Not Norman Hurst. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Our mission is out of this world. Because the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are looking on, and they are looking on to discover where can they see God's wisdom being operated in people who are connected, and committed, and are diverse, but are then gaining unity in their lives. In Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul talks to us about the devil. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to who? The devil. What's up with that? I thought I was just having an argument with my wife. Um, what's that got to do with the evil one? You know, it's just, it seems so random and so strange. Because we live our lives in the horizontal. But what Paul is saying, listen, no, you, you're not. When you're arguing together and you allow the sun to go down on those arguments, you are letting a foothold for the evil one to come and influence your lives. To come and drive a wedge between you. People that should be in unity, but people that are now going to be wedged. So don't let him do that. Because that's what the devil is going to try and do. We don't think about that too much, do we? Paul does. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, then, he just absolutely nails it. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's pretty full on. 
And sometimes as a pastor, you can be nervous about talking about it because you think the white coats are going to come for me any second. It'll be aliens next. But Paul himself is saying, no, listen up. This is, this is important. Your battle just isn't against flesh and blood. It's not just against what you see. It's about a lot of stuff you don't see. And you need his grace and you need his splendor. In Ephesians 4.20 then, he tells us that, you know what, through our behavior, through our bad behavior, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So through our conversation and through our actions and through our life, it's not just about, oh, I don't want to do that because I don't want to upset people. He's saying that ain't the issue. You don't want to do that because it grieves God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. You know, as a concept, this actually runs in several places in the Old Testament. So in the book of Exodus, you see some pretty amazing stuff going on. God hears the cry of his people. He hears the cry of Israel. And he says, you know what, I'm going to free them. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he goes after them. He goes for them. They have plagues. Through the last plague, the Passover comes. And God rescues his people. He pulls them out of the bondage of Egypt. Now, you would expect then that as they go through the Red Sea, they'd be looking at God for the rest of their lives. They'd be championing Moses, praising his name. Well, within about three weeks, they wanted to stone him. Because, he, you know, if anybody wants to be a leader, just bear that in mind. One minute you're a champion, the next minute they want to stone you. Okay, this is the way it works. And that's what happened to Moses. And he's literally just brought this whole nation through the Red Sea. And then as he gets to the other side, the people start rebelling. They start slagging him off. And do you know what it says then? It says that they grieved the Lord. They grieved God in the way they behaved. God had brought them out. But now they walk in disobedience and rebellion to him. And they grieve him. In Isaiah 63 then, Isaiah is prophesying to what is left of Israel. And he talks to them and he communicates to them. And as he does, he reminds these people of the exodus. And he's basically his exhortation is, you listen, do not grieve the Holy Spirit like your forefathers did. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in the way they did. But instead, walk in your lives in what? With a humble and contrite heart. So in the book of Exodus and the book of Isaiah, we see these themes taking place of grieving the Lord, in particular, grieving the Holy Spirit. And all Paul is doing here then is saying, you know what? Just like it was in Isaiah and just like it was in Exodus, you can still do it today. You can still grieve the Holy Spirit today in your lives, through your behavior, through the things you're doing. You know, the thing that I think really makes this go from black and white to color is when you stop and think that the Holy Spirit is not just a concept, he's not a power, he's not an influence, he's a person. And he's a person that resides in you. Let that filter in a moment. The third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, we tend to champion and think, oh, he's such an amazing father. God the Son, he's amazing. He died on the cross for me. God the Holy Spirit, I don't know, he's like a ghost. No, he's not. He's a person that lives in you. And you have the opportunity either to see his smile, or to bring him grief. What do you want to do? You see, the third person of the Trinity is not a force or a power. He's a person. 
He's the one that made you alive in grace. God the Father chose you before there was even time in Christ. Jesus died for you. What did the Holy Spirit do? He made you alive. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not alive. The third person of the Trinity made you alive and then sat in your heart and remained in your heart as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. As we read here in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He seals you. He remains in you. He's not going anywhere. He will never go anywhere. He seals you until the day of redemption. He preserves you and he protects you and he will never let you go. He resides in you. That changes everything. It's not possible to grieve a power. Certainly not possible to grieve a concept. I doubt we can grieve an influence. But can you grieve someone who loves you? Someone who made you alive? Someone who's more passionate about you than you've ever imagined? Yeah. And that is exactly Paul's point. Don't grieve him. He resides in you. You know, I remember a few years ago, as a young lad, I was probably about 12, uh, I must have been 10 years old, and I got home from school, and my family were a little bit quiet, and we sat down for a meal. I got a younger brother and a younger sister, and the meal was a little bit quiet, and my dad suddenly perked up and said, "Uh, Dave, just wondering how school was today. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for asking. It was good. Did you know your brother was um, upset in the playground? Yes, I had noticed that. I had I, I thought it bad day or something. I, yes, I had noticed. Did you not think to to go to him and care for him? Well, um, well there's like football on, and I was kind of playing football. And, and what had happened is my brother, for whatever reason, had been picked on that day. I hadn't even done anything about it. I was completely not interested. I'm just a big brother playing football. And both my mum and dad were, were upset. And they said, Dave, or David, they got him up. <laughs> David. And they said, David, don't let that happen again. Because we're family. And there's some things more important than playing football. And that's caring for your family. And do you know what? It, it's lived with me for the rest of my days. My brother was never left on his own ever again because it affected me. It motivated me to change. And it motivated me to change because I love my mum and dad. And I was aware it grieved them in the way that I'd been with my brother. And so I wanted to change. That's the very thing Paul is doing here. He's saying there's one that resides in you who loves you more than anybody you've ever met. Loves you more than a parent. Loves you more than a spouse. Loves you more than a child. He lives in you. So don't grieve him. Be motivated to change because your actions can grieve him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorites, says people take great trouble to read books on etiquette in order that they may behave properly in certain high social circles. Think of the care with which people study the rules if they should have the privilege of being presented to the queen. How careful we would be of our speech at Buckingham Palace. But we should be infinitely more careful of our speech wherever we are because of the guest who dwells within us. Our thoughts, our imaginations, he is there. He knows about them. It is comparable to swearing in the presence of a saint 
or using unworthy language in the presence of some holy person. This is Christian sanctification, a realization that he is within us. Not how can I get rid of this sin or that. Instead, we must think of him, our guest, and that should be incentive enough. Isn't that good? We would do well to start thinking of the spiritual dimension in our lives. Change isn't just to make us look better. Change isn't just to, just so it functions better as a church. No. Change is necessary because I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't want to grieve him, the one who saved me, the one who sticks with me. So what's then the exhortation from Paul? Well, that's verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And if this exhortation is without question a very small part of a much bigger exhortation, okay? It's an exhortation that started at the start of chapter 4 in verse 1 when he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the call. And it's part specifically of an exhortation that he begins in verse 3 where he calls us to eagerly maintain the unity in the bond of peace. According to Paul, the unity in our church already exists. So where's his story? He's saying, you know what, guys? This is, this is quite nice. You've been through starting point. You've been through starting point. Loved it. That, there's a bit of a unity here now going on then, okay? We're all on the same page. We're all shooting in the same direction. We're all doing the same stuff. This is good. Be eager to maintain it then. Be real eager. And as an expression of that, he exhorts us then to deal with our temptation towards bitterness. Bitterness that if left festering, will come out then as wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Now, I submit to you that for so many of us, you'll actually probably have a chance to put this into practice before the week's out. Because that's life. You will. You know, this is not a back pocket exercise where you think, oh, that sounds really lovely. I might get to that in a few years if somebody upsets me. <laughs> Take a look around. Somebody's going to upset you before the day's out. You know, this is the way it works. This is the way it functions in our lives. People will offend you. In our marriage relationships, it really is when sinners say, I do. It happens. You, I know you don't believe that, particularly if you're here and you're engaged. You think, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, not mine. <laughs> He's lovely. Yes, but then you'll marry him and you'll find out what he's like. You'll, you'll discover by the end of the honeymoon, he's a sinner. Yes, I could have told you that before. That's life. In our families, we give birth. Well, we don't. Girls do. And I remember with Josh, and you pick him up and you're like, oh, look at him. It's like the baby Jesus. He's, oh, he, oh he's lovely. And then when they're a few days, nah, and you're like, He's a sicko. We've got the wrong child. You know, and you just realize, how did this happen? So you give birth to sinners, and then you start, they get older, and they start giving you feedback in unhelpful ways, and you think this is not good. And then you have self-righteous kids when the king of the road comes next to you, and you get one saying, Daddy, that's not a good attitude. Shut up! <laughs> it's not helpful. They're not helpful moments. It doesn't take long in our, in our life to get hit with bitterness in our employment relationships. The situations that are just horrible. And you realize it would be absolutely stuffed. In our church relationships, people do things that can offend us or upset us or even sin against us. It happens. You know, sometimes they're big things. 
sometimes in our lives we face huge things in our marriages or in our families or in our churches where you have every right in some ways to be offended. You are offended because that was really out of order what took place there. But so many things in life aren't big things. They're little things. They're little things that somebody says or somebody does or somebody doesn't say or doesn't do. And you go away thinking, what's up with that? Clearly they don't like me anymore. And How did that happen? You, know, you walk past somebody, or I've, d- I've done it before, where I've walked past somebody and you think, well, they didn't, they didn't greet me. Oh, clearly an issue. Clearly a prob- they're probably going to be left by the weekend. You, know, you, you start to figure through and you think, what's up with this? It's lots of little things that are done, said, not done, not said, that if allowed to fester, can end up lighting the bitterness coal seam of our hearts that sits there and sits there and sits there. So Paul exhorts us, you've got to let it go. And so what are we to do? Well, number three, imitation, verse 32. This is what we're to do. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Now, all the way through this passage, from verse 17 onwards, this whole section that says the new life at the top of your page, this whole section has been to do with putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And verses 30 to 32, Paul does exactly the same. He says, okay, listen up then. You've got to put off bitterness. It's got to go. You can't still live with bitterness as Christians. You're not going to be able to maintain unity doing that. And you know what? If you're going to live and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and the calling that you've received, that's not becoming of you. So you've got to put off bitterness. And with putting that off, you'll be putting off some serious bad fruit. The fruit of wrath and anger, clamor and slander and malice, all the things that erupt from that bitterness, they've all got to go. So deal with bitterness. Put it off. You've also got to put something on. You've got to replace it with something. You've got to put on tender-hearted kindness. And do you know what the good fruit of that is? Forgiveness. The good fruit that comes from tender-hearted kindness, that is the attitude within. The fruit that comes out of your mouth is this, I forgive you. Because as your heart goes from bitterness to kindness, The action goes from anger to forgiveness. Folks, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord as your Lord and Savior, you're not a Christian, then listen, thanks for coming. I mean, really, I don't know whether I ever would, but I appreciate the fact that you did, and that that means a lot that you would come. And as I put together this message, I thought, you know what, it's very important if you do not know the Lord as your Lord and Savior, that you don't go away from today thinking, I get it. Christianity is all about being a better person. Because it isn't. These things don't make you a Christian. You could be an unkind Christian and a hard-hearted Christian. And you could actually be a kind non-Christian and a tender-hearted non-Christian. These things don't earn our salvation. They exhibit it. They don't merit it, but they mark it. But they never earn it. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Bible makes it clear that God made us. 
he knitted us together in our mother's womb. But then by the time you get to Genesis 3, which really isn't a long way into the whole book, man's screwed up. We rejected the creator and exchanged the creator for the created. We were made by God to find our joy in him, our identity in him, our passion in him. But we rejected him and decided to find our identity and our passion and our joy in the world. What happens? What you see today. And you have to read a newspaper and realize this is a broken down house. This doesn't work. This is hardly heaven. How did this happen? How did these things start to come into our world? They came into the world because mankind, you and me included, rejected God and exchanged him from the creator. As a consequence of that, we are under wrath. He's angry with us because he's holy and he's just. And he could have left us like that, but he didn't. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this story's about. This isn't a book of rules. In fact, it's hardly got any in it. It isn't really massively a book of wisdom, although there is some great wisdom in it. It's a storybook from the start to the end of a God who made you, of who you rebelled against, but who came after you. That's Jesus Christ. God the Son came to die on a cross saying that, listen, if you put your faith in me, you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. He came to die on a cross for you so that you could be forgiven. And how do you respond to that? Is it by doing good for charity? Nope. Is it by being a better person? Nope. Hang around with us long enough, you realize we haven't managed it either. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And saying, Lord, I have rebelled against you. And I need a Savior. So I put my faith in you as my King. And you as my Savior. And the Bible's clear. At that point, you are saved. Now, once saved, what am I to do? Well, you take him as your King. And then you listen in with the rest of us. So what are you to do if you're here today and you're a believer? Here's the thing. How do you apply this? You forgive others as Christ forgave you. You know, forgiveness really costs. I mean, honestly, seriously now, we do get into situations in our lives where you think, this is a lot to forgive that person because I'm angry and I'm gunning and they've stitched me up. And they have sinned against me. Forgiveness really costs. But the thing that should motivate us is where Paul finishes. Christ forgave you. Forgiveness in so many ways is forgiving somebody a debt. And when we find that debt too large and almost overwhelming and oh, I just couldn't do it. We must turn at that point and face Calvary. And examine the debt that you have been forgiven of. See, it's hard not to forgive somebody when you stand near the cross. When you see Jesus hanging across behind you, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you realize how much forgiveness cost, cost the Father, cost the Son. You realize any cost that somebody needs to be forgiven from the debt they've made against you can be made oh so easily. We apply this. By not only not allowing bitterness to fester, we apply this by allowing forgiveness to come out of our mouths. People will blow it with us. People will do things. If you're married, it'll happen there. If you've got a family, it'll happen there. If you've got any friends, it'll happen there. Unless you are a monk by yourself, you're in trouble. It's going to happen. But the Bible says, you know what? Put off bitterness. Put on tender-hearted kindness. 
forgive people even when they do things against you. Jay Adams says, man's greatest need is forgiveness. It is so easy for Christians to forget what it meant for them to come to Christ and be forgiven. But a lively sense of having been forgiven is essential and vital for Christian devotion. Without it, one easily leaves his first love. Without it, he will tend to lack the forgiving attitude towards others that is essential to proper Christian living. We need to learn about forgiveness and spend time thinking about our own forgiveness. Remember the pit from which you were dug. Christians are forgiven and should be thankful for it. That's what makes us unique. Of all the people in all the world, listen, only Christians are forgiven. A fact which should amaze us, humble us, and cause us to carry the message of forgiveness to others. Isn't that good? Of all the people in all the world, only Christians are forgiven. A fact which should amaze us, humble us, and cause us to carry the message of forgiveness to others. Bitterness, it should have no place amongst us. It only ever erupts in anger and clamor and wrath and malice. Tender-hearted kindness, like the tender-hearted kindness that the Savior had, that should have every place amongst us. And that will come out in actions as forgiveness. I forgive you. So practical application. Get your pens and papers out if you haven't had them already. Here's a few thoughts that I want to encourage you in. Number one. If you have offended someone, then go and be reconciled to them. Let's get practical. Everybody likes talking theory. Jolly nice. Let's get practical. If you have offended someone, then go and be reconciled to them. It's not my idea. It's Jesus's. Matthew 5, verse 23. It says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, that's so important. There will be times when you know, oh yeah, I've offended him. And I know what I said as well. What does the Bible say about that? You don't sit on it. You don't wait to see if they noticed. It says, no, you've got to go. Whatever you're doing, you're singing a song. That's jolly nice. Stop singing the song. Go find them. Go, go talk to them. Go and engage with them. Now, an important thing on that is it does w- use the word no. So here's, don't do this, okay, because this sometimes happens. Somebody comes to you and they says, listen, I just want you to know um, that, that I've forgiven you for what's taken place. Um, and uh, for, for the last 25 years, I've been festering you in my heart. You said something a long time ago in a message. And, oh, it really offended me. But I just wanted you to know that I've forgiven you. Okay, not helpful. I didn't need forgiving, and I didn't know it was even going to happen before. Okay, so now I'm just thinking, well, what did I say? Well, oh, my goodness, is there anybody else? Don't need to do that. It's specifically when, when you know that, person's got, that person knows you've offended them. Okay, then you've got to go to them and say, you know what, let's, let's, I, I need to ask you forgiveness because I know I've offended you. If they don't know, don't worry about it, all right, because you can end up causing more problems than the good. But if they know... Then go to them. If you've offended someone and you know, then go and be reconciled to them. So if you know, then you go. There we go. A little rule of thumb. If you know, then you go. But definitely do go. Number two, if someone has offended you and you can overlook it, then do. If someone has offended you and you can overlook it, then do. Proverbs 19.11 
says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Isn't that good? You know, folks, part of unity doesn't mean that we all walk around with blue and red lights on our head. We're not the sin police. So every time, so you're uh, very offended. You're very offended. I'm very offended. And clearly that was wrong. And I just want to let you know. Okay, not helpful. You know, there's a time when you just think, to be honest, it's no big deal. And you know what? Yes, that was sinful. But at the end of the day, she's clearly got a massive headache. She's got 14 crying kids at her feet. Let's let her off. Let's go crazy. You know, there's a time to just think, let it go. It's not important. Overlook an offense. And as the proverb says there, it's a good thing. It's to your glory to do that. And there's a time to do that. If someone's really offended you, if at all possible, let it go. What that doesn't mean is you let it go by chatting to all your friends about it. That's gossip. Letting go means you let it go. It's gone. No one even knows. It's between you and the Lord. You let it go. Number three, if someone offends you, and you cannot overlook it, then go to them and seek to be reconciled. Is this hard? Yes. Sorry. But this is what you have to do. If someone offends you and you can't overlook it, you've got to go to them and be reconciled. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You have gained your brother. That's the point. The point of going to somebody when they've offended you or sinned against you is that you want to be reconciled to them. And because of what they've done, you're finding, you're tempted towards bitterness, and you don't want to be. So God says, listen, okay, have you tried overlooking at it? Yes, I've tried overlooking it. Can you overlook it? No. Okay, then go to them. Go to them. And that's not weak. That's okay. There's definitely a time to be doing that. You go to that person and say, listen, I'm not sure you're aware, but what you said there, man, I found that really difficult. I found that just offensive. And When you do that, my exhortation is please go humbly and please ask questions. I have made both mistakes. I have gone proudfully and I've made accusations. Bad move. Because sometimes you're completely wrong. You go to somebody and you say, listen, I've heard you've said this. I am absolutely appalled. I can't believe it. Clearly, clearly there's a major issue in your heart towards me. And then they say, oh, I didn't actually say it like that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's fine. It's really awkward. Okay, so let's not do that. We want to be going around saying, okay, listen, um, I noticed that it seemed like you might have ignored me this morning. Is everything Okay. Oh, actually, Dave, I didn't annoy you. I'm so sorry, but I had a split and headache, and actually my mum just died. (laughs) Well, I'm pleased I asked. And I've had that happen to me. I've had that very thing happen to me where I thought somebody had an issue, and they had just lost a parent, and you think, praise God that I did not go. And say, why are you so angry? What's your issue? Yeah, my issue is my mum just died. (laughs) Ask questions. Be humble. Go to people. But we do sometimes have to go, and listen, if you need help with any of those things, come and ask. Praise God that in a body, he's given us mature Christians. He's given us life group leaders. He's given us pastors. There's people that we can come to. and We don't go to them with gossip, but it isn't gossip to go to somebody and say, listen, this is the situation in my life. I think I need to address it. 
how do I do this best? How, what, what's the wisest way of communicating to this person? What do you think? That's a good thing. Gossip is when you ask that, and then on your 50th person, <laughs> you think, are you going to apply it? Or, no, that's not good. But there's a time to definitely be seeking counsel and saying, look, what do I do? How should I best do this? Because sometimes relationships and offenses and sins can be difficult things to work with. Listen, the fire in Centralia, Pennsylvania is still burning. It's uncontrollable. But the fire in our hearts, the fire of bitterness, can very much be controlled. And that is the grace of God to us. There's great help in these pages of Scripture, great wisdom for us, and there is great hope for us in the power of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, when bitterness comes in and it comes knocking on your door, as it will, choose Christ. Choose the wisdom of Scripture. Allow the truth that you can grieve the Holy Spirit to motivate you and challenge you not to go down the line of bitterness. And instead, choose to imitate Christ, our Savior, and our King. Folks, would this be our story at Sovereign Grace Church? I am so eager, whatever else we do, that we build a church that is gathering around the gospel, and within that, we are united around the gospel. That is the very thing that Paul is talking to us about here. So we need to be a church by the grace of God that put away falsehood and instead speak truth, that put away gossip and instead only speak things that are good, timed well and useful for building one another up at the set time, that we put away corrupt talk, that we put away anger, that we put away stealing and instead seek to give generously for the furthering of the local church and the gospel. I'm passionate that we be a church that builds unity. I want that to be our story. So by God's grace then, would application be sweet? And would unity truly be our thing? Let's pray. Lord, it is true that you have built us together. A group of people that a year ago, on the whole, didn't even know each other. And yet now have love for one another and affection for one another and care. Lord, we are sinners. And so we inevitably are going to offend at different times and be offended. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us in those moments to choose you. To choose not to grieve you. But instead, seek to allow you to help us to clothe ourselves in Christ. Tender-hearted, kind forgiveness. Lord, you say that it's important what comes out of our mouths. And so would it really be important to us what comes out of our mouths? Words that bring grace, words that breathe kindness, words of forgiveness. Help us, Lord, by your amazing grace. Amen.